Hi, everyone, and welcome to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. This podcast is about my summer on safari and the rivers that run through it, it being the continent of Africa, that is. If you follow Tin Trunk on Instagram, you will see posts since June of the places I have been, hopping around to spend time with our clients on safari. I wanted to talk about these summer safaris, as I call them. They're not summer safaris here in Africa, for we are in the southern hemisphere, and in places like South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Namibia, and Zimbabwe, the seasons are reversed from those of the northern hemisphere, Europe, North America, etc. Still, this is a time when many visitors are from the northern hemisphere and taking advantage of summer holidays to come to Africa. I wanted to talk about what an excellent time it is to be on safari across this continent. In those places above where it is winter, you have crystal clear blue skies, cool to cold temperatures on the ends of the day, yet pleasantly warm hot ones in the middle. The leaves have fallen from the trees and visibility in this dense bush is at its best. Since it doesn't typically rain at this time of year, things are drying up and animals congregate more and more around water sources so wildlife viewing is optimum. In Botswana, the famous Okavanga Delta is in flood, as the rains that happened months ago in Angola have made their way into the delta, creating a watery wonderland that is arguably the most private and pristine wilderness around. Over in East Africa, it's a cooler time of year, but only marginally different from other times of year since we are on the equator. So cool mornings and evenings, warm to hot middle of the days, and 12 hours of light are the norm. It's often a bit more cloudy than at other times, but if rain does come, it's usually in the form of a quick passing storm. Saimara in Kenya are also harder and harder to predict. When I moved to Kenya 18 years ago, I could confidently tell clients that they would show up in Kenya by early July, for sure, sometimes sooner. For the past three years, they have really shown up only mid-July, and as I write this now on July 18th, they have only just begun crossing the river into Kenya from Tanzania. Some of this is caused by both countries, Kenya and Tanzania, burning grass to encourage them to stick around and eat the delicious green shoots. But still, weather patterns have changed and are continuing to change. And that brings me to the theme of my podcast today. I realized as I sat in my room overlooking the Kunene River here in Namibia that my travels this summer on safari have led me from one amazing African river to the next. And since these are absolutely the lifeblood of Africa, water without which animals and communities would perish in many cases, I thought it would be fun and poignant to make them the protagonists today. I won't go as far as to interview the rivers in first person, although that would be super fun too. And frankly, at least in the case of Egypt, the Nile was personified by the god Hapi. Indeed, let's begin with the Grandmama, the Nile. Perhaps you listen to my podcasts about Egypt and remember that the Nile is known as the world's longest river, covering 4,160 miles or 6,695 kilometers. Some say the Amazon is longer, but we'll leave that aside for now. The green belt of the Nile is remarkable when viewed from the air or from a hot air balloon. The verdant valley is narrow, from about 3 kilometers to a maximum of 16, so about 2 to 10 miles. This belt represents 3% of Egypt's land, but is home to 96% of its people. 
Agriculture flourishes along this strip, and once you leave it, there's basically nothing and no one. The Nile is the only major river in the world that flows from south to north, from Lake Victoria to the Mediterranean, over those 4,000-plus miles. There are actually two Niles, the blue and the white, and they converge at Khartoum in Sudan and flow as one into Egypt. There are no more Nile crocodiles in the main part of the Nile, but they are still found in Lake Nasser, a lake created by the dam at Aswan. Dams, plural, actually, as there are two. These dams have created electricity for much of Egypt. They've also displaced people in the area and dramatically changed the silt flow of the Nile. From ancient times until the first dam, and, and we're talking ancient as in 5,000 years ago, until around 1898, the annual flooding of the Nile was paramount to how life flowed as well. The floods brought nutrient-dense silt into the fields for the farmers. It also meant some farmers took time off to let the fields flood and often moved to other jobs, like, for instance, building pyramids. When you visit Egypt today, one common theme as you explore temples around Luxor, pyramids around Giza, and elsewhere, is the positioning of the Nile. This is true in Sudan, too. Temples used to be reachable by boat from the Nile that are now quite a distance from the river. Check out the Avenue of the Sphinx in Luxor between that temple and the Karnak Temple Complex for a great example of this. This summer we did just that as we were taken around by our amazing Egyptologist to see Luxor by night and the beautiful restorations they have done to the Avenue of the Sphinx. As the clients boarded their private Dahabia to sail and be tugged up the Nile to Lower Egypt, I knew just how exciting it would be to journey on this river for four nights, relaxing on the open upper deck, seeing the farms, the cows and donkeys grazing along the banks, the birds fishing, and to stop here and there to walk through the village, see tombs and temples and an ancient quarry where stone was harvested for these magnificent structures. Enough to see and do and plenty of space to create a special relationship with this matriarch of African rivers. I flew home to Kenya, a day late due to a delayed flight, and just a day after that headed off to Zambia, where I spent five nights along the banks of the Luangwa River. The Luangwa is one of the main tributaries of the Zambezi, and one of the four biggest rivers in Zambia. It begins near the border with Tanzania and Malawi in the northeast corner of Zambia. The river floods in the rains between December and March, but never dries out, so it is an absolute wildlife haven. I don't think I've ever seen so many hippos or crocodiles, and that is actually saying something for lucky me. There are two important valleys for wilderness along the river, the north and the south, Luangwa. They form a natural barrier with steep escarpment walls that has limited the number of humans who settled here, and that has kept this area pristine for wildlife. South Luangwa National Park is a favorite of mine, and that is where I re went recently to spend time with some clients on their second safari. They were on a fantastic trip that began with some days in Johannesburg, discovering why two or even three nights in this city is well worth it, despite most people just blowing through. They then went to Botswana and reveled in the Okavango Delta in full flood, as well as other beautiful and animal-dense areas there. Next, an island lodge in Zambia to witness the drama of Victoria Falls, spend time on the Zambezi, and visit a traditional Zambian village that happily they found as impressive as I. 
We met up with them at the end of the trip in South Luangwa for three nights, and then James and I headed off to do some walking in the bush camps. This is a specialty of Zambia. Go to a seasonal camp that is made of materials, often thatch, that can be taken down during the off-season. Then walk from one of these to another of these through the bush with a guide who specializes in walking safaris. There's a gun bearer up ahead of you, and not only do you get to approach animals like giraffe, zebra, antelope, and others on foot, you learn about the microbush, the plants, the footprints, and how not to run into anything dangerous like elephant or buffalo, using tracking and winds, as well, of course, as eyesight. And a side note to this is how surprising it is to many that we are wary of bumping into large herbivores much more than the famous predators like lion and leopard, for they tend to run away the moment they see or hear us. The life along the Luangwa is bountiful, and on our walk we saw pretty much all of the above, including warthogs, monkeys, baboons, and of course hippos and crocodiles below the banks of the river. The walk took about four hours, and we arrived at bush camp number two at the perfect time for a refreshing shower and a delicious lunch. That evening we went on a drive that ended with watching two leopard cubs playing around a tree trunk. They chased each other, jumping into the air and being cats at dusk as the heat comes off and the action starts. We never saw the mother leopard, but she was definitely watching us from her hiding spot in the bush as she kept an eye on her frolicking offspring. Next year, during the rains, we're returning to experience what it's like then. The flooded river and what they call the emerald season. Not so ideal for a first-time visitor to Africa hoping to see lots and lots, but special and off the beaten for anyone returning who loves walking and feeling like an explorer. There's a special grove of ebony trees that I got to visit by car and then on foot. The idea of seeing it again by boat is enthralling me. These were magical trees, for sure. And speaking of magic, where I am sitting right now must have looked like the work of magic, or of trickery, to the first Himba who passed through. I'm on the Kunene River. It forms the border between Namibia and Angola. Northern Namibia, southern Angola. It runs about 590 miles, almost 1,000 kilometers, from the Angolan highlands south until it splits into, with the Kunene flowing east to west and ending up in the Atlantic Ocean, just around the famous Benguela Current. The mountains around here, the Bains, form a gorge, and with the narrow river, you feel you can reach across from Namibia and touch Angola, which is pretty much what we did last night when our camp set up sundowners on the opposite banks. It feels like Mars here, You can see images on my Instagram posts. The desert is a combination of sand and dark rock that against the bright blue sky and the green belt of the river keeps me grabbing for my camera. I'm here visiting a professional photographer and her family, in fact, and I note that she is also grabbing her camera quite a lot. We wake in the mornings, socked in by fog that's traveling some 80 kilometers from the ocean to us and that burns off to drastically higher temperatures around mid-morning. It's burning off very quickly, actually, today, which is beautiful. Few places in Africa have this massive variation between hot and cold during the course of the day. The Kunene is the lifeblood of this region. We are in the Namib Desert, the largest one in the world. It is dry, and it is getting drier. 
The Himba people live here, and their traditional lifestyle of nomadic cattle raising is under threat from the aridity of the place. We visited a Himba village yesterday. The lodge I'm at, Sarah Kafema, works very closely with them to ensure that our presence here is a benefit to the people in a respectful and real way. The women cover themselves with okra and from the time of puberty do not shower further, only washing with okra every day. They adorn their hair and heads with symbolic decorations and like so many tribal cultures in Africa, practice polygamy in which a man has several wives who work together to raise the children and maintain the village. They live in this desert and sit in the sun all day, working on herbal perfumes, leather, and grass jewelry, and preparing food for the children. The men and older children, as in maybe eight, are usually far away with the goats and sheep, and if they are lucky cattle, looking for grazing lands in the sand. If it sounds hard and harsh, it is. But it's also beautiful, and none seem to understand that more than the Himba themselves. During our visit, I collected five handmade necklaces to buy from them, which caused a lot of laughter for some reason. When I asked our guide, also from the Himba community, what was so funny, assuming the joke is probably on me, he said it's actually that they are just people who laugh and smile all the time and think that we are frankly quite a lot of complainers. You have water, but complain it isn't clean. You have a home, but complain it isn't big, and so forth. Indeed. They are a smiling and joyful bunch of ladies. We all commented afterwards what amazing positive energy they shared with us. The Namib means vast place, and really, that's an understatement. There's something about the vastness of this desert where topography, landscape, and colors change every five minutes that makes you feel humbled and awed by nature with a capital N. It's the only true desert in southern Africa, and in its broadest term of range encompasses Angola, Namibia, and into the western cape of South Africa. Only the Atacama Desert of South America matches it in terms of aridity and age. The desert is almost completely uninhabited. For example, Namibia is almost three times the size of Italy, but with only two million people compared to some 62 million in Italy. The coast has enormous populations of brown fur seals, the Benguela current making waters too cold for even their normal predator, the great white shark. The skeleton coast is named for the old whale bones that littered the beaches from the time of hunting these giants, and more recently for the shipwrecks of explorers and traders dating back as far as the 1530s. I've had the glorious opportunity to fly over these shipwrecks, and it is a highlight of experiences in Africa for me. The sand bushmen of the area named it the land God made in anger. The cold water currents produce fog almost every day. There's a constant heavy surf along the beaches which made non-motorized boats incapable of launching from shore. The wildlife along this part of Namibia is fascinating, and almost all of it has adapted to harsh desert conditions. The fog and the watery mist it carries is essential to their survival, as well as hunting adaptations, such as lions learning to take down giraffe. Rhinos still live here, and a special sighting is the brown hyena. Namibia has the largest populations of cheetah left in the wild, although they're quite hard to find. 
Oryx, as well as birds, have special thermoregulation abilities that make them more adaptable to these conditions. The fur seal colonies don't have any predators in the water, as we said, but they do have lions and hyenas who've adapted to hunting them on land. For me, seeing thousands of fur seals in a single colony was amazing, considering that we basically exterminated them in the 1800s along the coast of my native California. So I'm saying this while sitting beside the Kunene. Yesterday afternoon, we went along this river to see the crocodiles and birds along the banks, as well as the people from Angola farming corn and raising goats and cattle on the barren hills. We then took a scenic drive that boggled my mind with beauty. I need to digest what I have seen, but right now I could claim it is one of the most stunning places I have ever been. And tomorrow? Well, tomorrow I head home to Kenya and to the final river to be discussed today, the Mara. I live on the edge of Iburu Mountain in the Great Rift Valley of Kenya. Iburu rises to about 9,000 feet above sea level, and even my house sits at 7,000. So we are what is called tropical climate modified by altitude, as we are just minutes south of the equator. Iburu and the nearby Mau Escarpment, Longanot Volcano, and Hell's Gate Geothermal Valley are important landmarks in the Great Rift Valley, which goes from Jordan to Mozambique, and without which none of these podcast topics on Africa would exist. The rift is so incredibly instrumental to the wildlife and people of this area, literally in every location, and I will do a post about that in future, as it merits its own for sure. The Mau Escarpment rises to about 11,000 feet behind my home, and it is here that the water for the Mara River begins. The Mara originates in the Mau and flows all the way to Lake Victoria through Kenya and Tanzania. It's famous for two things, the wildebeest migration, which involves crossing the river at great peril, and the ginormous crocodiles that constitute most of that peril. 65% of the Mara is in Kenya and 35% in Tanzania. It goes on for about 365 kilometers. If you go on safari in Tanzania's northern Serengeti or Kenya's Maasai Mara, the river is hugely important. Thanks to Lake Victoria, thunderstorms bringing downpours are fairly regular, however, so we're not talking about the kind of lifeblood of a river like the Kunene. Along the Mara, you have gorgeous yellow fever and fig trees, the latter a favorite resting place of the leopard. And around this ecosystem, you find not just the second largest mammal migration after bats, but so much more. Lions, cheetahs, leopards, and hyena, the top predators, flourish as their prey, antelope, warthog, zebra, and others indulge on the luscious red oat grass. Hippos and crocodiles inhabit the rivers, as do pythons and terrapins. The orange-leaf croton bushes provide shade and respite from bugs for the lions and leopards. The vast open plains running grounds for the cheetah. Oh yes, and there is we, We are a species inhabiting the realm of the Mara, too. Each year, around 200,000 visitors come to the Mara to see the wildlife spectacle. Kenya has done a fairly mediocre job of regulating this, especially compared to other countries like Botswana. So you need to know where to go to avoid becoming not just part of a zoo-like feel, but the main attraction of it. Still, if you get to Mara right, it's pretty hard to beat. In the end, 
the Mara flows into Lake Victoria. The source of? You got it, the Nile. So I love telling people that the rain falling on my home is heading to the Mediterranean by way of this most evocative river. The ancient Egyptians practiced a negative confession. It's also called the Declaration of Innocence. This consisted of 42 sins the soul needed to confirm it had never committed in order to be granted entry into the afterlife. You know, where there's treasure and everything is perfect. The sins one denounced as never having done included never committing robbery or violence, never stealing grain or the property of God, never uttering lies, never acting with undue haste, never prying into others' matters, never stopping the flow of a neighbor's water, and never polluting the waters of the beloved Nile River. If I had been able to interview these rivers and spoken as one to another, they all would have one request in common. Protect us. Bring it on, ancient Egypt. These rivers need our love. Thanks for listening to me sitting here beside the Kunene. More rivers will flow onto the podcast soon. The Zambezi, the Okavango, the Owasso Nero, as I make my way around Africa on Summer Safaris Part 2. Mm-hmm.